CNA has hosted a conversation with Congressman Adam Smith, ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, moderated by CNA's President Richard Fontaine, on Russia, the modern threat environment, military, and emerging threats. The following is a recording from the event, hosted at the CNA's office on Wednesday, September 13th. Thanks for listening. There's two things about Russia. One is, as I started to say, is the overarching strategy that we need partners. We need to work together with countries in the world to confront the problems that, frankly, confront us globally. Now, there's always going to be competition, but basically when you look out the next 50 years and try to figure out how peaceful and prosperous the world is going to be, then the most important thing there, I think, is to work with as many other countries as possible to you know, build those relationships. And Russia is a power, and they are a factor. And you mentioned just a couple of things that are important globally to us. North Korea, there's also Afghanistan, there's non nuclear nonproliferation. They are a very powerful country, and it would be great to be able to work with them. And you can go back over the last, well, since the fall of the Soviet Union, what should have been done or could have been done that you know, would have brought them more of a, in more as a partner. But I still think that needs to be our overarching goal, is how can we get to the place where we can actually work with Russia? That said, we're not there now, and Putin doesn't want to be there. And what he is trying to do, and it's sort of evolved to the point where it is a definite threat to our interests, is he's trying to make the world safe for autocratic dictatorships. Now, I, this is a genuine, as I can, far as I can tell, heartfelt belief on, on behalf of Vladimir Putin. He believes that's the best form of government. He doesn't trust the rabble, if you will. Um, he fears mobs, and he wants strong, central control of government. Now, primarily, at least initially, so that was where it started, was this was his idea of how he, and he needed it to control Russia, in his view. But for whatever reason, he decided on a zero-sum game where he wanted Russia to be against the West. He wanted to not just make sure that his power was consolidated in Russia, but to help spread the sort of totalitarian ideology. This is the relationship with Assad. This is meddling in elections uh, throughout Western Europe. This is an attempt to undermine the basic fundamentals of not just democracy, but it's also important to point out he under, undermines the fundamentals of capitalism and really replaces it with kleptocracy. You know, I mean, look at Putin's Russia. He and a few of his oligarchs control all the money. There is no middle class to speak of. There's very little economic opportunity. This is part of the reason why Putin has focused on the Ukraine, focused on the battle with the, the West, is sort of to distract people from the lack of economic opportunity that they have. That is not the best model for the government, and it's also not the best model for keeping peace in the world. If you have governments that don't give their people a voice, it leads to instability. So we've got to offer the sort of liberal, democratic, capitalistic alternative, that we want freedom and opportunity in political speech. And he's battling, you know, you look throughout Eastern Europe, you look at countries like, like Poland and Hungary that are drifting away, even Turkey, the Philippines, that are drifting away from allowing a free press, allowing the people to speak. Um, and you're moving towards much more totalitarian governments. And that's the basic struggle, not just with Putin, but with how we spread our ideology um, to make the world, frankly, more peaceful for all of those reasons. So, so that's the challenge. So Putin's part of it, but he's not all of it. 
And ultimately, like I said at the outset, where we want to get to is we want to get to the point where Russia, China, Brazil, India, the European Union, the big powers of the world say that global Islamist extremism is a threat to all of us. How can we work together on that? That climate change is a threat to all of us. How can we work together on that? And sort of you know, North Korea with nuclear weapons. And if we have those countries working together, I think we're better able to contain those threats and better able to have a peaceful and prosperous world. So that, that's one, I think, cornerstone of how we should look at our national security and foreign policy approach. And I want to get uh, to the defense and military specific elements of that in a sure. minute. But what you framed as an ideological competition. Absolutely. Do you think that we as a country, as a government, are adequately engaged in the ideological competition between Putinism and you know liberal democracy and a rules-based international order? And if not, how do we wage the ideological aspect of that competition? Yeah, absolutely not. We, we, are, we are not adequately engaged. We are not spreading our message. The State Department um, has was given a chunk of money to, to do exactly that. They decided not to spend it. it we, we don't understand what message it is that we're trying to, to push, first of all. And second of all, we are trapped in our own internal struggle. We're, we're, we're trapped in our own internal debate, which frankly, in some ways, is going against the, the ideology of liberal democracy and freedom that I'm talking about. In our own country, we've, we've fallen into our side right or wrong. Well, actually, it's worse than that. Our side is always right, no matter what they say. And if they say the opposite two minutes later, well, they're right then, too. We've sort of lost critical thinking in this, you know, ideological war where whoever's on our side is absolutely right, and there's no sort of thoughtful approach to leadership, and that's distracting us from our ability to deal with the, the larger global issues. And this isn't the only ideological struggle. Obviously, uh, the perhaps more profound ideological struggle is our um, struggle between the Muslim world and us and whether or not um, the extremists in the Muslim world are going to win out or are they going to find an ideology uh, that can successfully combat ISIS and al-Qaeda. So these are the ideological struggles and we have to, I think, spread that message as clearly as possible both at home and abroad in order to be in a position to, you know, again, get us to a more peaceful and prosperous world. And in your article, um, you talked about enhancing deterrence, uh, particularly in Europe's east. Uh, yeah. What do you think that looks like in concrete terms? You're talking about um, missile defense. You're talking about rotation, more rotational units uh, in the Balts. Are you talking about uh, more prepositioning of equipment and materiel? What kind of things in particular would you like to see us do more of? All, all, all of that. Um, and I think certainly in the Ukraine, we could provide more um, defensive weapons to the Ukraine. Because the thing to remember about Russia is they're not actually that strong militarily or economically. But what they've done is they've figured out how to make a lot out of a little. They use the cyber strategy. Um, they use disinformation campaigns and are able to aggressively move forward. You know, Putin does not want to pay a high price for anything that he's doing. But as long as the price is low, he'll keep pushing and he'll keep undermining those representative democracies in Eastern Europe and eventually in Western Europe in different ways. So yes, I think that's part of it. I don't know that the military component of it is the most important part. Yes, we need a presence there. I think Putin is, is going to be really reluctant to engage in a full-scale military operation. What we really need to engage in is you know, some of the cyber stuff and the disinformation. 
I mean, Russia has done this this masterful job of figuring out how to use fake news, um, real fake news. By the way, fake news is not a news story that you happen to disagree with. Um, that's just the news story that you disagree with. Fake news is when you make up something that actually isn't true to advance your ideology. In Russia, you've read the stories about how you know they've created false people in the U.S. who then spread a Twitter message on something to, to spread a rumor out there, and, and it catches fire and it serves their interests. And we're not we're not countering that effectively. That's the piece of it that's the most important. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the one big area of cooperation that we need to focus on and the, the thing that I hope I had a couple people misunderstand an aspect of the article. I don't think that we need to match Russia, you know, tank for tank, plane for plane, nuclear weapon for nuclear weapon. In fact, what I really think we need to do is we need to open up a dialogue on nuclear weapons in particular so we don't stumble into another nuclear arms race and st stumble into a very, very risky situation. Um, former Secretary of Defense Perry um, has written a book mm -hmm. about this and is talking a great deal about it, that part of what kept us, you know, we were on the brink many, many times during the Cold War, but you had an open dialogue despite the differences between the Soviet Union and the U.S. that kept that from happening. We're potentially losing that, even as Russia is rebuilding their nuclear forces. So I think an open dialogue with Russia is a critical piece of making all of this work as well. It can't just be a confrontation, because with, two, with the two primary nuclear powers in the world, the risks are simply too great. Secretary Perry has come out um, highlighting the potentially, what he believes is the potentially destabilizing um, uh, implications of a nuclear modernization effort on the U.S. side, New, nuclear cruise missile and things like that. Where do you come down on you know, nuclear modernization efforts as a whole and also some of these discrete systems like nuclear cruise missiles and things like this? I think we need far fewer nuclear weapons than we currently have, and I think we need to, to change our deterrent strategy, and I think there is a real risk if we stumble into the nuclear arms race of building more and more. Um, I'm against the new, new cruise missile. Then we stumble into a situation where, once again, people start thinking of nuclear war as, as a reasonable possibility, and it's not. I think we can have a more than that, and I know we need to recapitalize. You know, our, Every single nuclear weapon we have and all three legs of the triad are old, um, and some of it needs to be upgraded, but not all of it. I always point to China's um, strategy. They have far fewer nuclear weapons than we do, but they have a clear strategy, which is, says we have enough that if you threaten us in an existential way, we can obliterate you. And that strikes me as enough. And I think we should rethink our strategy in that regard. And like I said, make sure we maintain an open dialogue with uh, Russia in particular to make sure that we don't stumble into a nuclear conflict. Let me um, move from Russia for a moment and talk about a few other issues with you. Um, the Navy, uh, four collisions uh, now, um, and you know, th there's clearly something going on here. Uh, Senator McCain has pointed to um, the sequestration era budget implications and said that this has resulted in you know, insufficient training and so forth. And so the budgetary environment has had an effect on you know, the kind of danger that our sailors have been in um, and resulted in these collisions. Is that your sort of reading of what's going on there? Or how do you, um, 
how do you assess kind of what's wrong with what's happened in the Navy recently and what we need to do about it? I think that's part of it. It, it. There's no question. Now, the Navy also, even before this this era, I think it was back in 2003 when they fundamentally changed the way they trained their captains and relied more on, well, they required less training. I, I think in part because they fell in love with the technology that, you know, you have all this technology that the ships can guide themselves, and so you don't need to train them as well. well. I think we've learned the error of that. But undeniably, Senator McCain is right. And he's right, but the formulation is a little bit wrong. You will hear from most people on the Armed Services Committee and most people in the Pentagon, sequestration budget caps are awful, we've got to get rid of them, that's the problem. That is an insufficient answer. The real problem is that our strategy and what we've decided we're going to commit to on national security priorities is not matched by the budget. And even if the budget caps went away, if you go back and look at all the things that people are talking about, uh, I forget the numbers, 350 ship Navy, 570,000 man army, total recapitalization of our nuclear forces, I mean, forget the budget caps. You'd have to have an $800 billion a year defense budget in order to make that work. And so we keep having this expansive strategy of what it is that we're supposed to be ready to do. We don't have the resources to match, and we haven't made choices about that. We stubbornly say, well, if it's national security, it doesn't matter what it costs. Well, it always matters what it costs, first of all, and second of all, when you start thinking about things in terms of scarce resources, it's amazing how creative you can be. And actually, you know, a venture capitalist told me one time he hasn't met the company that, that can't be cut by 10% and actually work better. Yeah. All right? Uh, or my all-time favorite quote, which I attribute to Winston Churchill one of these days. I'm going to have to look it up and see if I'm right about it. But, you know, gentlemen, we're out of money. Now we have to think. Right. Um, right. And what that means is you actually get more for less instead of we need more money, we need more money, we need more money. Well, what are you going to do with it? And I tell the story all the time, but I met with some of the folks from the office in that assessment about six months ago, and they gave me this, this laundry list, and they summed it up by saying, we do not have the money to fund the strategy that we put in place in 2012. And I said, how much would you need? And he looked at me kind of funny for a while. I said, no, I mean, if you don't have the money, how much? He had no idea. Hmm. Okay, all he knew was they didn't have enough. Hmm. I mean, what the heck is that? I mean, if you're putting, you're putting together a budget, you should know this is how much we need. It's just become this sort of, we need it, we need it. And nobody's put together a strategy within the budget. And then, of course, the second problem that, that people are overlooking where the budget caps are concerned is budget caps or no budget caps, we're $20 trillion in debt. We are running a deficit of $700 billion. It is projected to go up, not down. So you can get, getting rid of budget caps does not make money magically appear. Our, you know, I mentioned that our national security strategy is out of line with the resources available to fund it. Our entire budget is out of line with the resources to fund it. And I've got a long riff here, which I don't really get into, and I'll try to shorten it by just saying that because of the fact that politicians consistently overpromise and the American people consistently overexpect, we have created a situation where there is a clear consensus in this country. The American people want the budget balanced today, not in 10 years. They are opposed to just about every tax cut, well, every tax cut you can 
uh, sorry, t tax increase you can imagine. And when you ask them what they want to cut from the budget, they don't want to cut anything. Now, they're perfectly okay with cutting the budget in the abstract. If you ask them, would you like to see the federal budget cut by 10%, 80% of the people will say yes. In fact, just for amusement's sake, if I had the money, I'd love to do a poll and see how far you could go where people would still say yes. Would you like to see the federal budget cut by 80%? Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, do you want to see Medicare cut? No, 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 no. Medicaid? No, 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 no. Um, what about social? No. What about national security? No, can't. Education? Transportation? This is where we spend the money. So because of pollsters and because of the increasing sophistication of language, we've been able to fool ourselves into running campaigns where we basically lie to the American people. You will note in my campaigns, I think I'm one of the few, I promise next to nothing in my campaigns. All I promise is I'm going to work hard, I'm going to try to do the best for the district. All right, I get away from saying, you know, I'm going to give you better prescription drug coverage. I'm going to double the size, you know, because it's just not realistic in our budget environment. Um, so if we're against cutting anything, we're against raising revenue, and we want the budget balanced, you want to know why we can't pass appropriations bills, why the budget continues to be tied in knots? That's why, because you, there is nothing that Congress can vote for that won't be hated by the American public. Because anything that we vote for will not balance the budget, cut taxes, and increase spending. <laughs> it won't, because um, that's impossible. So it's wrong to just say, well, gosh, if we could just get rid of sequestration, then everything would be fine. I think we should get rid of sequestration or the budget caps, because they're nonsensical and not well thought out. But to think that that's the solution to the problem, and then we can go, oh, wow, budget caps are gone, it's all good. No. We still have a major disconnect between the resources that we are prepared to provide and what we want out of our federal government. And then until we begin to at least bring that within you know, the Grand Canyon size gap that it currently has, we're going to be struggling. And the men and women who serve in the military are going to be suffering. Because at the end of the day, if you don't make those upfront decisions, what's the first thing that you cut? Well, we're going to cut back on fuel so we won't do as much training. Um, we're going to, okay, we're not going to be able to fully repair those airplanes. You cut back on those readiness issues. So I think that definitely contributes, but you've got to look at the broader picture if you're actually going to address the problem. And when you talk about bringing the strategy sort of down and it's and its ambition so that it's more in line with the resources we're prepared to expend. Um, what kind of things does that imply for our national security strategy? I mean, what would you do less of? Well, first of all, um, I think we ought to raise taxes so that we actually have some revenue, because I do see that we have national security needs. And we also have incredible infrastructure needs and needs elsewhere as well. And consistently cutting taxes, and here we go again, promising it. Um, and, you know, it, all right, I'm going to have to say two things that probably aren't going to serve me very well in the long term, but oh, I will go say ahead. Um, <laughs> Yes. Um, number one, you know, the Republicans come along with their supply-side lunacy that, you know, you know, the real problem, in fact, if you want to know the complete insanity of it, was Paul Ryan up at Boeing talking about how our 35% corporate tax rate was killing us. Um, the effective tax rate, what we actually pay, here he stands in front of Boeing, and Boeing is my hometown company, and God knows I love them, 
but over the last 15 years, they've paid an average of 3.2% in federal income taxes. And we're standing in front of Boeing saying the problem is that we have a 35% corporate tax rate. Um, you know, well, you, gosh, if you want to cut it to 20 and actually have Boeing pay it, well, then I guess that's fine, but I don't think they'd be anywhere near as excited about your speech if you did that. Um, so, you know, that's number one, is on the top in the supply side. And then, of course, Democrats always come back, and President Obama did, did this as well, and said, oh, what we need is we need tax relief for the middle class and the working poor in America. There's a lot that we need to do for the middle class and the working poor in America to make economic opportunity more broad-based, to deal with the economic insecurity. We don't need to, again, cut their taxes. All right? I'm upper middle class, and my wife does our taxes, and we pay either 12 or 13 percent because all the tax cuts that have been given, you know, the per-child tax cut, getting rid of the marriage penalty, all this, all this stuff we've done has really now reduced the federal tax burden. Now, if you're talking about local property taxes, local sales taxes, that's a whole different conversation. But if we're telling the American public, you know, you desperately need a tax cut, 30 years ago, maybe, but after 16 years of cutting taxes, to do that again when we're in this huge revenue problem? So that's one bad thing that I'm going to say. Second bad thing I'm going to say is that we can spend, we can and should spend less money on defense and get more out of it. I mentioned the nuclear thing. You know, recapitalizing the nuclear force, building all three legs of the triad, we can get a lot smarter about that and save trillions of dollars. We don't need the level of deterrent that exists in our nuclear forces, number one. Number two, I think we actually can get by on the budget we have if we build partnerships and if we also rely on diplomacy and development as part of our national security strategy. You know, to say that we're not ready to go to a full-scale war with, with China or Russia, yeah, well, we, weren't re we're, we haven't been ready for any of the wars that have come up because we haven't quite expected them, and then we have to sort of adjust. But to build for it, I think is the wrong strategy. Our main threats right now, I think, are in the hybrid warfare, in cyber, in space, in those areas. There's where we should invest instead of saying that we need some number of ships, some huge, massive you know, army. I think we can be a lot smarter about how we build that national security strategy um, because, we're, well, we're going to have to be because to say we're out of money is an overstatement, but we don't have anywhere near as much money as we seem to think we do. I'm going to ask two more questions, and I'm going to turn to all sure. of you. So and I'll try to give briefer answers. No, you're, you're fine. You're fine. Um, so be thinking of, about what you'd like to ask uh, the congressman. Um, speaking of money, you've been pushing for a new BRAC round. Um, yes. DOD has uh, said that it'll have more than 20% excess capacity uh, by 2019, which is kind of an amazing figure when you step back and think about that. Um, Senators McCain and Reid have an amendment to push for a BRAC round, I guess, that is on the floor or will be on the floor this week. Um, how do you handicap the chances you think we'll come out with an NDAA that will start a new BRAC round when all is said and done? It's going to be difficult because the House is pretty, pretty adamantly, well, adamantly, I forget what the vote was. I think we got maybe 170 votes for my amendment to add a BRAC and about the same number a year ago. Uh, Congressman O'Rourke offered the amendment. So there are a lot of members in the House who are opposed to BRAC. Um, 
Look, it's, it's not going to have a spending any less money overall. It's just going to have a spending that's smarter. And I suppose I should have mentioned that when I was talking about places where we can spend less money and have a better, better national security. Um, I think that's certainly one area where we can do that. Um, last question I'll ask before we go to the audience on North Korea. Um, you know, there's a debate, I think, probably within the administration as well as outside the administration about are the North Koreans rational and therefore are they deterrable? Um, and if they're deterrable, then at least in theory we could live with a nuclear-armed North Korea, even one that could reach the United let, let, States. Let me interrupt you right there. Okay. I, love, I love this sort of speculation. You know, can we live with a nuclear-armed North Korea? Uh, we are. Well, I was going to say they can reach the United States with an ICBM. And have been for quite yeah. some time. Um, but the second part of the question I get. Look, the, the answer is, you know, rational might be too strong a word. Um, you know, rational is debatable. But they're not suicidal. And I think what is not debatable is the reason that they continue to build their missile and nuclear program up is they believe it is necessary for regime survival. And I think we can deter them by saying that, look, you want to launch missiles over, over the top of Japan, we're not happy about it, and we will continue to sanction you, and we'll continue to make your life difficult economically, but we're not going to go to war with you over it. But if you ever attack any of our allies or us directly, you will be obliterated. We don't even have to use nuclear weapons to do it. We've got the military capacity way beyond what North Korea is um, to take out their regime. And if they put us in a position where their regime is such a threat to us that we have no choice because they have acted, they should know that. And I think that deterrent strategy is the way we're going to have to go. I'm not happy about it, but pretending that there's some way to get rid of North Korea's military capability is, I haven't seen it. Um, either in terms of diplomacy or military or relying on China or any of that. So I think deterrence and, you know, it's not mutually assured destruction because they're not going to be in a position to destroy us. They'll be in a position to harm us. And yes, I want to shore up missile defense as strong as possible to give us the best possible chance of shooting down their nuclear weapons should they be so crazy as to try to launch one. But overall, I don't know how <laughs> rational they are, but they're not suicidal. That I know, and they do know that a military attack on the U.S. or South Korea would be suicide. And let me just follow up. This is consider this like a subtweet, not an additional question. So, sure. uh, so Japan and South Korea are both talking about lifting some of the restrictions on their own military capabilities. The Japanese are talking about potentially at some point developing an offensive strike capability to hold bases and or, or launch pads right. in North Korea at risk. The, the South Koreans would like to revise the restrictions under which their missiles, the trajectories can go into North Korea. They're even talking about the reintroduction of tactical, American tactical nuclear weapons onto the peninsula. Where do you come down on, you know, Japan and South Korea taking, uh, you know, sort of getting rid of some of these restrictions and taking a more assertive defense posture? I think they need to. I would draw the line of tactical nuclear weapons in Asia. I think that would be destabilizing. Um, and that would change North Korea's calculus and increase their concern. Because the other thing that I didn't mention is while North Korea may not be suicidal but some irrational actor, they are unbelievably paranoid. I mean, they believe in their heart of hearts that we are determined to take them out. And that gives you an incredibly fine, fine line for a miscalculation. And if we, if, if you had, tact, no, sorry, if you had, 
There's no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon. It's a nuclear weapon. Uh, but if you were to introduce short-range nuclear weapons into the Korean Peninsula, I would worry greatly that North Korea would think that they had no choice at that point but to attack. So we have to be careful about avoiding miscalculation on either side. Great. Um, okay. Well, I don't know how great it is, but... <laughs> well, great in the response yeah. is not characterizing the situation. <laughs> um, yeah, that's not entirely great. Um, okay, so uh, raise your hand. I'll call on you. Please identify yourself and uh, remember that questions uh, end with a question mark. Uh, so, uh, yes, ma'am. Hi, Connie from uh, Inside the Army. Um, sort of keeping in mind that the Army is chair of the FAU-EDI uh, so much of it, is there anything that can be done specifically for the Army to kind of ease their budget needs, whether it's developing partnerships, like you said, any specific steps, and kind of following on that, what are the most important capabilities for the Army? Um, well, Europe? yeah, I, I think the partnership piece is critical, and we've actually made some progress on that. You know, when you, you look at Afghanistan and Iraq, one of the most successful things I think we've done is we've set up the Special Operations Forces, um, and we're training our NATO partners so that they are becoming vastly more capable. And as I said, that's the bulk of what we're doing right now when, when, we're, when we're fighting terrorism, when we're still dealing with, you know, Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, is with more of our Special <coughs> Operations Forces and, and, that, and that piece of it. I think the most important thing for the Army is to give them the size of an army that they can actually train and equip and have be ready. It doesn't make sense to have a 570,000 person army that you can't train and equip because of these budget constraints. And I don't know exactly what that number is. I think we're at 495 right now. Um, but I'm worried about the readiness issues. So if we have to come down to 475 or something like that, but then they will have the resources to be trained, then that is better than having a force that is huge but poorly trained. So that's the most important thing I would say for the Army. And then yes, you know, if we can work with partnerships, and it's not just NATO. I mean, we've had a lot of success in the Horn of Africa working with Ethiopia and Kenya uh, and Uganda, and not all of our partners are, are perfect, I understand that, but we've been able to contain AQAP reasonably well. We stop Somalia from becoming the type from Somalia from becoming the new Afghanistan and that's with a very very small footprint we really don't have that many US troops present there but we've built up the partnership capacity of those countries that are working with us so those are the pieces that I would say are most important for the army yes sir Hi, my name is Chuck Waller, I'm a former chair of the United Nations Association Council of Organizations. Uh, I was born in the Tri-Cities, please don't hold that against me. That's a uh, lovely uh, spot. Uh, mm. in, in January, I read an article in the Washington Post suggesting that there's $32 trillion held in, by clept in, in offshore accounts in certain U.S. banks for kleptocrats. And would you be willing to, to explore the idea of some legislation that would begin to, to freeze and seize some of that money to pay for the sustainable development goals, which I would suggest are the best means of preventing most of the problems we, we face yeah. in the world and undermining Putinism. That's some of what the sanctions against Russia did, is they targeted specific, specific individuals and froze their assets. And that's why Putin, when you look at what they were interested in in this campaign and the meetings they had um, with various people in the candidate Trump orbit, that's what they were laser-like focused on. 
was, you know, how can we get these economic sanctions lifted because that hit them where they lived. Um, that hit the oligarchy. And that hit those people with, with the money. So, yes, I would be all in favor of getting more aggressive about it. Um, I'd have to think a little bit more about the seizing the money part about part. Um, we'd have to be able to clearly establish that it was stolen or however we do the bit. But if we were going to do it, then to use it for development, I would be all in favor of that piece of it. Um, I think that, that makes a great deal of sense. And that's what should, that's that's why what Russia is doing, I think, is so, so threatening to global stability, is it's encouraging this consolidation of power so that the difference between the haves and the have-nots becomes greater and greater, and there become fewer and fewer and more concentrated haves. And that's what leads to a very, very unstable world. Um, that's what Putin is doing, and that's what a lot of other people aspire to do, and that he is supporting. So I think that's a good idea. It's something I'd be very, very interested in looking at. Yes, sir. Hi. Oh, Sydney Freeberg, Breaking Defense. Uh, to bring it uh, back to the U.S. domestic political angle for a moment, uh, I'm curious what you think about the use of Russia as a domestic political bludgeon, uh, be it you know people who are formerly hawkish, you know, people who say Russia's not so bad because they want to defend Trump, or conversely, people in your own party who use Trump as, I mean, Putin as a bludgeon to beat Trump when they probably wouldn't cut entitlements or cut domestic funding for defense. You know, how much do you see people genuinely seizing on the real threat versus using the threat as an excuse to make, <coughs> uh, make those partisan points? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's not, that's not my focus. I have no doubt that people on both sides do that. They do that with every issue. Um, I would hope that we would, would look at it. And, and that's why what we've written what I've said is what Russia is doing now is something that we need to confront and stop. But, you know, I, I don't disagree with President Trump on the basic point that the world would be a better, it's a better world where we're able to work with Russia. Um, now, as far as getting into all their connections with Russia and all that, I, I don't want to get into that this morning um, and just talk more about the broader national security policy. But look, I'm sure that there's people on both sides of this debate who are using it. And that gets back to the point I made about sort of the death of truth. Um, you know, whatever my guy or, you know, my team wants is by definition good. So, you know, if Trump says Russia is good, Russia is good. If you know Democrats say he's bad, you know, Russia's bad, then Russia. We, we should get beyond that and really analyze what our relationship with Russia should be. But yes, I'm sure people are playing politics with it. Uh, I've seen it. I'm trying not to. We're trying to focus more on what should our policy towards Russia be, um, and not get into the discussion of the you know the Trump relationship and what's going on on there. I mean, there's a place for that, obviously, in American politics. But in what we tried to write we're trying to talk about on national security, we're trying to focus on what the policy towards Russia should be. Well, and the thing that you emphasized, I mean, here, but also in your article and some of the other things, too, is that you know, even if you're only talking about, you know, um, things like election interference or, or, uh, or trying to damage democracies, it's more than just hacking emails and throwing them out there. This is a multifaceted yeah. Russian attempt that combines uh, hacking, Propaganda, RT, fake news, bots that, that try to sow dissension and amplify particular political messages, and these things all come together, and that effort is not going anywhere. 
here. So, yeah. you know, which I think is an important point because, you know, even if you, um, even it gets caught up, gets caught up in our domestic politics, that phenomenon is not tied necessarily to any sort of one election or anything else. I mean, this is going to continue to be a challenge we have to deal with far into the future. And I think that, that was what. Yeah, no, the that's point the point. And I get the political point that you're making about that, but I think the more important point is to truly understand what Russia is doing, how we should counter it, and how we could perhaps turn that relationship back around to a better place. And, you know, look, when it comes to, to climate change, energy crisis, global terrorism, these, you know, um, nuclear proliferation, these are all things that Russia should care about, and they do care about. And you know, we need to figure out how we can, can work with them on those things and at the same time counter the um, bad stuff that they're doing that we've talked about. Yes, sir. Um, Alex Ineski, Voice of America. Uh, Congressman, you brought up the issue of engaging Russian disinformation. Yes. So I have uh, one question then, a follow-up question. How do you see the role of Voice of America, fact-based journalism, in engaging Russian disinformation, and on top of that, won't adding um, Sputnik and RT to the foreign agents list make the job of journalists in Russia, foreign journalists, much harder? Well, I certainly think Voice of America is critical. It played a critical role during the Cold War in getting our message out. Mm -hmm. We're not getting our message out. We're not using Voice of America to the extent that we should, and we're not tr we're not using the media and using our ability to, to spread positive information. We're not engaged in this communication war that's going on in the way that we were during the Cold War. There was a constant battle. Look, it's it's frustrating because you know what are people going to believe? You know, whatever you say, it's like, and do you start making your own stuff up? Uh, I, I don't think that's necessary. I think we can engage honestly about what we're doing, but we're not doing it right now. And I'm sorry, the last part of the question lost me a little bit. Um, so we're, we are going to put probably Sputnik, the Russian uh, media, and RT, and register them as a foreign agents right. in the United States. So Russia will probably yes, make an, you know, another one uh, move, and then that would make the work of Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, you know, Deutsche Welle, BBC, much harder in Russia. Yeah, I think we would be better served to simply engage, you know, call RT and Sputnik out for what they are, um, and counter with our own message. And that's what we're not doing at this point, is we're not countering that message effectively. And I do think it's caught up in domestic politics because of the, the Trump relationship with Russia, because of what Russia did in our election, and whatever the truth of it is, you know, we, we get lost in the politics of that, of, you know, basically the Trump supporters see Russia as simply an effort by anti-Trump people to delegitimize his presidency. Uh, on the Democratic side, we see it as a, you know, <coughs> conspiracy might be the wrong word. We see it as, you know, collusion to affect our election. And what is really in that, I don't want to say that's not important, that is important, that is something that we, we should address, but what's really important is to understand the message that Russia is sending and how it threatens what we stand for as a country beyond how we feel about President Trump, that it, it threatens some of the basic freedoms that, frankly, you know, many Republicans have long advocated. And let's focus on that and let's get the message out. But I would tend to agree that if we get into a war of, well, we'll shut down your media outlets, you shut down ours. Even if we, we do that, 
with RT and Sputnik, they're still going to get their message out. I mean, they're still going to put stuff on the internet. They're still going to use um, the the fake news approach, the disinformation approach. You know, we have to be able to counter that with our own message, not think we can shut theirs down. Yes, in the back. Hi, um, Caroline Hopkins. I say both, both of those things could be true. Um, it is an opportunity, no question. Will we miss that opportunity? Probably. Um, and, you know, just give a little history here. In, in 2010, President Obama and then Secretary Gates laid out a 10-year strategy and said, here's the money that we expect to have. And given that, here's what we're going to do. And the Republicans had an absolute conniption fit that this was terrible, that it was cutting too much, and we had this huge debate about how, you know, how can you let resources drive your strategy? Money shouldn't decide the issue when it comes to national security. Now, just to be perfectly honest, I find that outlook to be insane. You know, I don't know, maybe there's some people out there who have so much money that, that resources aren't part of a discussion. I've never been one of those people, so I can't relate. Um, whether you're talking about the family budget, a campaign plan, whatever it is, the amount of money you have is always a factor in what it is that you're going to do. And if you don't factor that in, you wind up with something that looks like our current national security strategy, which nowhere near matches the budget. Now, if in fact we were to do this again and go back and take a look at okay, what realistically are we going to have, I think it would be a real opportunity to, to get <coughs> us on the right path. But look, um, and I always search for optimism in the world, but um, you have to, it's really worse than it looks when it comes to the budget. And everyone was all like, oh, we got a three-month deal, and the Democrats talked to Trump, and oh, isn't this great? It doesn't, well, I was going to say it doesn't freaking matter. It matters to the extent that slightly less than three months on the calendar matters. Um, but, you know, it's, well, basically, we have been driving towards the edge of a cliff. And last week, we decided to slow down to 30 miles an hour from 50. Um, so I'm not exactly breaking out the party hats and celebrating. Because that disconnect that I described earlier, and I'm sorry, sometimes I get so frustrated by it that I struggle to articulate it clearly, this disconnect between we have to balance the budget, you know, taxes are too high, we're underfunding infrastructure, we're underfunding defense, we're underfunding education. How can we not support this program? It has to add up, people, okay? As I like to say, in my 20 plus years as an elected official, I've had more people than I can count walk into my office and pitch either some kind of tax cut or some kind of spending program. And I can literally count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I could honestly look at them and say, you know, that is a complete and utter waste of money. It's not going to make any difference. It's a terrible idea. It's always going to help. All right. You know, you spend more money, you're going to help something. You cut taxes, you're going to help someone. But it's got to add up. And here's how bad it is. And I can't believe that people haven't written more about this. And here's why 
we are headed towards a complete meltdown at the end of this year. So we are going through this exercise in the House right now to, quote, pass the appropriations bills, end quote. Now, in, contained in that is a $72 billion, sorry, $72 billion above the caps on the defense appropriations bill. We can get into the OCO conversation another time. But the bill that passed out of the House, the appropriations bills, was $72 billion above the budget caps. Now, a couple of years ago, I took to telling people who kept saying, what are we going to do about sequestration? What are we going to do about sequestration? I said, we don't actually have sequestration. We have budget caps. Okay? And the way the Budget Control Act is written, you only have sequestration if you exceed the budget caps in an appropriations bill, and it actually goes through the House and the Senate, and the President signs it into law, then you have an automatic across-the-board cut. And I said at the time, I said, and look, the Budget Control Act is just a law. It can be changed like any other law. And Congress would not be so stupid as to pass appropriations bills that exceeded the budget caps without also changing the Budget Control Act so that those excesses wouldn't be automatically cut back. All right? I underestimated the stupidity of Congress. Um, and actually, that's a misstatement, because it, it isn't stupidity. I wish it was stupidity. On a certain level, stupidity can be fixed. Um, you, you, you can educate people. You can talk about it. It was craven politics recognizing the incredible disconnect out there. The reason Republicans passed the defense bill that both exceeded the budget caps by $72 billion and didn't change the Budget Control Act to make that possible is because they wanted to be able to say, as Republicans, we're tough on defense. We're spending money on defense. See, we took that vote. And they also wanted to be able to say, we are fiscally responsible. We are sticking to the budget caps. Do you have an appreciation? And I'm sorry, I just, I, I grew up in SeaTac. I have a tendency to swear, and I'm not on television here, so I won't do it. Do you understand just how freaking stupid that is? Okay? I mean, it is mind-boggling. It is, and it is at the cornerstone of how our government is going to function. There's no coming back from this. What are they going to do? What are they going to do in December? Are they actually going to vote to raise the budget caps? by $72 billion, and I haven't even gotten into the fact that if you raise the defense budget cap by $72 billion and cut domestic by five, you're not going to get the 60 votes in the Senate that you have to have in order to do that, because no Democrat is going to vote to gut domestic programs in favor of $72 billion more for defense. And if you've actually read the Budget Control Act, 60 votes are required to exceed the budget caps in the Senate, and it's not a filibuster thing. No nuclear option here. It's the law. And in order to change that law, you need 60 votes. You can't just say, okay, we only need 50 votes. And here we are, in the middle of September, not addressing this. Okay, so quick follow-up. What are your expectations for December? Do you think they're going to be <coughs> Well, you know, the Sherlock Holmes thing, you know, eliminate the impossible and all that is left is what is likely, um, is really put to the test here because all of the things that are options are on some level impossible. And when you look at, at, at the appropriations process, 
you know, what, what are our options? What, what could we do? Well, one, we could do what we've done before, which is cut a deal to raise the budget caps on defense and non-defense by a roughly equivalent margin by ourselves a year. Are there 218 votes in the House to do that? Would Paul Ryan do that, um, knowing that probably about 170 members of his caucus would hemorrhage? Um, yeah. I would I would consider that unlikely that they will cut that deal. Okay, so then you come back to well maybe they just raise defense, don't raise domestic again. Don't see the Senate going for that. So then you come back and say well I guess then the only thing we can do is a CR for the entire year. But there's an increasing number of people who understand that a CR is borderline legislative malpractice. And particularly for the Department of Defense. And you know, you notice that McCain and Thornberry and some others voted against the CR. And if a year-long CR is put on the table, bleh, um, we're gonna do that. So then what's what's the option? You know, we just shut down the discretionary portion of the budget and go home because we don't want to vote for anything because it's gonna contradict a bunch of hypocritical promises that a whole bunch of people made over the course of the last 20 years. I don't know, but you know, it's funny. I, I see Paul Ryan every morning in the gym, and I wanted to ask him this. Um, I just haven't quite figured out how to put it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> you know, yeah, you see that cliff? We're we're headed. We die. You know. So yeah, in a rational world, um, we'd sit down, we'd have that discussion, we'd look at our resources, but inevitably people will come back and say, uh, but no, we should have more money than that. Yeah, but we don't. Um, we should. So I'm not going to agree to that. Okay. Um, if we can't decide on how much money there is to spend, everything else is paralyzed. Um, and right now, we can't decide on how much money there is to spend. And then we're talking about cutting taxes and doing tax reform. It's like, yeah. You know, you got to figure out how much money you're going to spend for at least a year, preferably five or ten. Um, if this is going to work. And so what I see happening is probably a year-long CR, and that's 549 for defense. You know, maybe they come along and just say, okay, we'll have a $170 billion OCO and just be hypocritical that way. I don't know. But worse than I don't know, they don't know. They don't have the first frickin' clue what they're going to do. They just keep hoping to get through the day. Um, and eventually, you're just going to hit that cliff. All right. Easier, <laughs> easier question. Uh, that was a pretty easy question. Okay. All right. Doesn't have a particularly good answer. Yeah. Uh, yes, sir. Well, you have the Air Force and um, the question I have is after over 15 years uh, in fighting the war on terror, do you think we've hit the new normal in Afghanistan where we're just going to be a continued president there? And do you think Congress is going to be tolerant of that in the near future and in probably the next five years? He said an easier question. <laughs> <laughs> um, the truth about Afghanistan is we are not going to be able to pacify it, um, whether it's five years, 10 years, 20 years. The vision that we had back in 02 and 03 of 
putting in place a government that could stand and resist the extremists um, and function on its own is going to be hard to come by. Um, the best solution that we can hope for is some sort of reconciliation with the Taliban. And at the end of the day, that will come with only one stipulation, and that is you cannot give free range to global terrorist groups. Um, and if you do, we'll be back. Um, that's our only way out, is to get some sort of reconciled government and say, you know, our one red line is if any of these groups show up and start plotting and planning attacks, we're not going to wait this time until they actually attack us. We're going to take them out. Um, and how we get to that, that's going to be tough. Um, but it's Afghanistan is just a very, very difficult place. And to answer the last part of your question, there is going to reach a point very soon where the American people are no longer willing to spend the money and put the lives at risk in Afghanistan that we continue to do so. Regardless of the, and I don't disagree with the fact that if we were to pull out of there today, it would pose a national security threat to the U.S. That there is a distinct risk that transnational terrorists would once again um, have a free country to operate in. So for the foreseeable future, we are going to try to do what you just described, the new normal. Just try to keep the lid on it and keep it from completely falling apart and hope to get, get to a better place where we can reconcile some of the various groups that are there. Um, and that is a very, very depressing outcome because the way we govern Afghanistan, not, not good. Uh, but it's just a very, very hard problem. When the Obama administration had been talking about potential negotiations with the Taliban, they had two additional red lines. So they had the one that you put on the table as the irreducible one, no sanctuary for global terrorist groups. But they also said that the Taliban would need to forswear violence and it would need to embrace the uh, Afghan constitution so women have rights and you know there is a, a government uh, and, and so forth. Do you think those other two are just unattainable in any I think expenditure we have, well, I of resources? I think we have to keep pushing for those other two, but they're going to be difficult mm -hmm. to attain. Mm -hmm. So eyes on the prize means the irreducible uh, sort of demand that we should have it relates to the, yeah. the terrorist threat that might emanate from Afghanistan. I don't know that I'd refer to it as as much of a prize as that. It's, it's very, very disappointing <coughs> that it's come out the way that it has that there wasn't a better way. And I, you know, you can go back and second guess a hundred different decisions. I don't know that there was a path that would have gotten us to the right, right place in Afghanistan. It's just a very bitterly, they've been fighting each other for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And getting that to stop, very, very difficult. And just on the politics of this, um, in terms of the continued support for the enduring presence that we have there now, and the, you know, and the, the funding to the ANA and all of the, you know, this is in the billions of dollars that we continue to spend in Afghanistan. What would happen, do you think, if there was some galvanizing event, you know, some sort of mini Tet Offensive type of thing where the Taliban had, you know, unexpected offensive in three or four cities and made unexpected Hasn't progress? Hasn't that kind of happened a half dozen times? Yeah, but I'm talking about post this recommitment that President yeah. Trump just made, you know, is is that something that you think politically the American people just sort of say, okay, these things happen, it sort of goes up and it goes down, or they don't pay that much attention, or would they say, you know, what the hell? You know, well, we've I been there forever, you know, this time to move toward the exit. 
The only difference is I don't think the American people are paying that much attention to Afghanistan right now. It's not like Vietnam in that sense. Mm -hmm. I think Afghanistan is drifting into the background because all volunteer military, um, you know, and I hate to say it, but a lot of people, you know, if my son or daughter isn't over there, um, it's just not what I'm focused on. Yeah. So I think it's different. In fact, even in Vietnam, you know, as I remember reading about all the protests against Vietnam and everything, when they got rid of the draft, hmm. it went way down. Now we got out anyway, um, but I, I think that the, the public is not happy about it, but they're not as focused on it um, as I, well, frankly, think they should be. So it's a very difficult situation. Hmm. Joe. Joe Sorenzioni, Plowshares Fund. Uh, thank you for your candid comments. How worried are you? Um, I'm worried about it. I take some solace from the fact that, that John Kelly is the chief of staff and seems to have been able to clear out some of the underbrush, shall we say, um, at the White House, and that Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson and General McMaster um, are a lot smarter and calmer about these issues and seem to at the moment hold sway. That, that reduces my concern. But yes, I am still concerned that we will, we will stumble into a war in that regard. Um, you know, as far as, there's really nothing that I can see that we can do to further restrict the president's ability to get us involved in things. I mean, it's just been the history of this country. Almost every president has taken some military action without congressional approval. And, you know, the only way we can do it is like in Vietnam, and they cut off the money. Um, but if they do it before, if it's just a quick strike or whatever, then how do you cut off the money? So I am worried about that. The executive has an enormous amount of power when it comes to engaging our military, and I am deeply worried about uh, whether or not President Trump would stumble into something. So I, I do have to go, unfortunately. Okay. Well, I'll go to hearing, but I. Thank you. Your candor was wonderful, and uh, really appreciate all of your uh, answers to all these questions. We covered a huge amount of territory. Thank you for being here. Please join me in, uh, in thanking Congressman Smith.